us. And Lord, this morning we ask that you would please help us to know you more by teaching us from your word. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Just want to say before I preach that this week we passed the fourth anniversary of the day you all voted to invite me to come to be your pastor. And just like you would say to a spouse, happy anniversary every year, I just want to say thank you for giving me that invitation. Uh, you are a great church. Are you here just in the witness this morning, the Jubilee Reach Center, all the lives that are being touched. That's just one of the many ways that you as a congregation are making a difference in the world. And it is just a hoot being your pastor. I love you and I love being here. So thanks for the invitation. You don't have to raise your hands all the way up, but how many of you remember your first date? You just kind of, you know. How many of you are still trying to forget your first date? Yeah, yeah. My first date was going to a seventh grade dance with a girl named Jill Lewis. And I wanted to impress her, so I put on my best tan leisure suit, the green flowered shirt, and some really cool puka beads. Thought about using my dad's Old Spice cologne, but opted instead for the refreshing scent of Right Guard. And I was too young to drive, so my father had to drive us. And at the time, we owned a Ford Pinto. And if you remember, right, those were the cars that would explode if you touched the back bumper, right? To make matters worse, we'd lost the gas cap, and so we'd stuffed a little wet, white rag in its place, which, given the car's tendency to burst into flames, made it look a little bit like a wick. So we got in our rolling Roman candle and went to pick her up. Then my father drove us to one of the more exotic restaurants in eastern Washington, Taco Time. It was just great. But you know what? I don't think words can fully capture the experience, so I'm going to do a brave thing. Here's a picture of me. No, not that. There you go. Okay, get rid of it. <laughs> I want points for bravery, man. That is a kid who is hungry for love, right? And nothing says love me, baby, like a tan leisure suit. We're doing a short sermon series on two lies that the devil tells us. And last week we looked at the lie that says, you can't do it. You don't have what it takes. This week I want to look at the opposite of that lie. You got to do it. You have to perform or you won't be loved. I mean, that's why I wore the tan leisure suit, to get Jill Lewis to love and respect me, right? Contraindicated, though that may seem. We start to hear that lie very, very young from parents and teachers and coaches. You know, if you get good grades or if you get on the football team, we'll be really proud of you. And that lie continues into adulthood and is certainly alive and well on the east side, isn't it? If you get into that college, if you land that promotion, if you live in a big house, man, people will respect you, maybe even love you. And if you don't do those things, nobody will respect you or love you. And that makes us anxious and fearful as we desperately try to outperform each other to try to get people to love and respect us. Where in your life do you hear that lie? 
You've got to perform to be loved. Is it your job, your spouse, this church, friends, neighbors? Where do you hear that lie? Because here's the deal. Jesus wants to tell us the truth. And here's the truth. God loves and respects you just as you are, not as you should be. And that's what Zacchaeus discovers in the story we read. As you remember from the Sunday school song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he, right? And that it seems to have given him a bit of a Napoleon complex because of it. Being short in that culture would have earned him instant disrespect. And so to compensate, maybe, he does what a lot of us do. He says, I'll get so much money, I'll get so much power, people will have to love and respect me. Problem was, though, he chose the wrong profession. Tax collector. Right? Tends not to make you very popular. Particularly in that culture where tax collectors would price gouge their fellow Jews in order to make a fortune. So he got rich, but he still didn't feel loved. And that's the way it is with a lot of the things that we turn to in order to earn love and respect from other people. It doesn't work. Because even if you do land the impressive job or live in a big house, people may admire you because of that, maybe... But often they just resent us for our accomplishments. And even if they do kind of start to love and respect us for our accomplishments, it's pretty shallow. And it doesn't last very long. Because you're only as good as your last sale or your last sermon or your last whatever. The things we turn to in order to earn love and respect ultimately get us neither. When I finished my graduate studies, they gave me a, a fancy diploma. And do you know what the best thing about my diploma is? If I take my diploma down to Starbucks and show it to them and give them a dollar fifty, they'll give me a cup of coffee. <laughs> because my diploma makes them love and respect me so much, right? You see, as soon as we achieve something, we realize that we may have won a bit of admiration, but not real, lasting love and respect, the kind that comes from not having to earn it or prove it. And that's what Zacchaeus discovered. But then Jesus comes along and he says, hey, you, Zacchaeus, come down out of that tree. I'm having dinner with you tonight. Now, in our culture, the phrase, I'm coming over for dinner uninvited is not a good thing. But in that culture, eating with someone was the highest form of love and respect that you could show someone. But more than that, it also shows that Jesus respects Zacchaeus doesn't just accept and love him, but he respects Zacchaeus, that he wants a friendship with Zacchaeus. And that's important because, you see, if God just loved us and didn't also respect us, well, that would be kind of patronizing, right? I mean, oh, look at the cute little humans. They're just so adorable. You've got to love them, right? But Jesus wasn't in this story being condescending to Zacchaeus at all. He, do he doesn't say to Zacchaeus, you may be in my presence, tiny sinful person, right? Jesus calls him friend, and he respects us so much that he wants us to be his business partners and redeem in this world. And that's what Zacchaeus discovers. And what had Zacchaeus done to earn all of that love and respect? Absolutely nothing. God loves and respects us just as we are and not as we should be. Now, whenever I make a statement like that, someone always asks, well, then, does that mean that I can do anything and God will still love, respect, and forgive me? Yep. But what about the really good people like Mother Teresa who worked really hard to be good? Does God just love them as much as other people? Yep. 
But wait a minute, they did more to deserve it. That's not fair. Nope. The grace of God is not fair. And that's good news. Because if it was fair and we all got what we deserved, we'd all be in trouble. But notice what Zacchaeus' experience of Jesus' love and respect does to him. It makes him start doing good deeds. Zacchaeus says, I'm going to give half of what I've got to the poor. You see, it's not that doing good deeds isn't a part of the Christian experience. It is. It's just that the motivation is different. We don't do good deeds to earn God's love. We do good deeds in response to God's love. You know, my wife has changed my life by the way she's loved me, and that makes me want to do good things for her, usually. So practically speaking, how do we experience God's love and respect in some really tangible ways? And I'm going to tell, say to you the same three things I said last week, and it's not just because I'm running out of sermon material, but because I think in our culture these three things bear repeating. How do we experience God's love and respect in a tangible, life-changing way? And the first thing is, when the devil comes and lies to us and says, you've got to perform to be loved, rebuke the lie with the truth. Say, that's not true. God loves me just as I am, not as I should be, so go away, devil. The second way to get rid of the devil's lie that we have to perform to be loved is through community. In this story, Jesus restores Zacchaeus to the community of faith. And that's because Jesus knows we need each other to be reminded that we don't have to earn God's love and respect. Now, none of us can love perfectly the way Jesus did, but we can try, right? In our small groups, in our Christian friendships, let's do the best we can to be Jesus with skin onto each other so that his love can seem more real and more tangible to us. Because you know what? If there are at least a few people in our lives who have seen the best of us and the worst of us, who can view us as whole people, both good and bad, and if there are at least a few people who will love and respect us no matter what, even if we lose our job and live in a shack and drive a Ford Pinto and wear a tan leisure, well, maybe not that far, but except for that, they'll love and respect us no matter what. If there are just a few people in our lives for whom we do not have to perform, that takes all the power out of the devil's lie. Rebuke the lie, be a community. And finally, the best way to experience God's love and respect in a life-changing, tangible way is through prayer and Scripture, to hear His voice in prayer and Scripture. I have a Bible called the Promise Bible, and it, it puts my name in every verse where it might be able to fit, all throughout the Bible. So, for instance, John 3.16 says, For God so loved Scott that He sent His Son. Or Romans 8 says, there is now nothing that can separate Scott from God's love. And my name is all throughout the Bible, wherever it might fit. And it's a great reminder of how much God loves and respects me. As you read Scripture, personalize it. Put your name wherever it might fit to get a sense of how much God loves and respects you individually. And also practice prayer so that we can learn to hear God's voice. As I said last week, God does speak, usually in thoughts that are recognizably not our thoughts. I have a friend who has spent his lifetime trying to earn other people's love and respect. And he's worked very hard. He's made a lot of money, has a big house, has lots of cool toys. Well, a while back he was praying at a men's retreat. And he got one of those thoughts that was clearly not his thought. And it said, will you let us love you? Will you let us love you? And he knew that that was the voice of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit speaking to him. 
And just the fact that the God who spun the Milky Way took time to talk to him made him feel loved and respected. And now he's learning to live in the truth that our worth is not based on what we perform or achieve. It's based on the fact that God loves us, respects us, and died for us. As Pastor John Ortberg puts it, there are two kinds of love. There's the kind of love that loves something because of its value. It's the because of kind of love. Because you're good looking or because you've achieved something, I love you. That's the kind of love that loves something because of its value. But there's another kind of love. There's also the kind of love that creates value in what it loves by loving it. Let me give you an example. A while back, my daughter wrote a story for me at school. And just in case you can't read that, it says, My dad is a pastor. He writes sermons. And on Sunday, he tells people about God. And then there's a nice picture of me preaching at all of you. And look how attentive you all are. And then on the next page, it says, he is a senior pastor. Not sure she knows what that means, but she thought it was important to put in there on the second page. Now, my wife and I love this picture. Now, is it the best art ever? Well, you know, it's better than a lot of modern art I've seen, but... You know, Michelangelo, it's not. But we love it, and we've kept it. We're probably going to keep it until she's grown up. We'll probably pull it out at her wedding and show everyone what she drew when she was six, right? Now, to you, this probably would have no value. But to us, it's very valuable because it reminds us of our daughter. We love this picture, and that makes it valuable to us. There is the kind of love that loves something because of its value, but then there's also the kind of love that creates value in what it loves by loving it. We have value because God values us, not because we've earned it somehow. A while back, I got to know a man named Sam Huddleston. Sam grew up black and poor, and as a result, he felt a lot of shame that had been heaped on him from school and culture and all kinds of people around him. But he says he always felt loved and respected by his parents, even from the time he was a little kid. He talks about how as a kid he'd often get scared at night, as kids do, and he'd go into his parents' bedroom and he'd say, Mom, Dad, I'm scared the boogeyman's going to get me. And he said his father would always good-naturedly joke with him and say, Son, don't worry. Don't no one want you but your mama and me. (laughs) And he knew that that was warm and affectionate, joking. And they showed him a lot of love and respect, but there was so much disrespect toward him in his school and in the culture around him that it drowned out his parents' voice. And he ended up getting involved in some gang activity, in part to impress people, show that he was tough, show that he deserved respect, show that he had some value. Well, one night he and a friend went to rob a liquor store, and it was supposed to be just an ordinary robbery, but the friend ended up shooting and killing the clerk. And Sam was put in prison as an accomplice. And he said the first night he was in prison, he was only about 18 years old. He was young, he was scared, and his father came to visit him. And he thought, how can I face my father now that I'm in prison? But the only thing his father did was to put his arm around Sam and say over and over again, what are we going to do about this? What are we going to do about this? What are we going to do about this? And he said the word that got him was we. Because it showed him that his father hadn't given up, that he wasn't alone. His father was still hanging in there with him. And it showed that his father loved him, but also more than that, that his father still respected him. 
Now, his father didn't pretend that Sam hadn't done anything wrong. He had. But he also knew that there was good in Sam as well as a lot of sin. And his dad came day after day, week after week to visit him. And in his father, Sam began to get a glimpse of his heavenly father. And while he was in prison, he made Jesus his leader, his forgiver, and his friend. Well, eventually Sam got out of prison, sought forgiveness from the family of the clerk that had been killed, and he turned his life around. He went on and he started a church in the Bay Area and has worked to help a lot of young men feel unconditionally loved and respected through his ministry so that they don't have to go through what he went through. There is the kind of love that loves something because of its value, but there is also the kind of love that creates value in what it loves by loving it. Sam's father gave him a sense of worth and of value and of dignity by loving and respecting him. And in that, Sam was able to experience his heavenly father saying, you are valuable not because of what you've achieved or haven't, but because I love you and I respect you and I died for you. And hearing that, Sam began to act like the priceless treasure of God that he was and just naturally start to do good things in response to that overwhelming love and respect. It's just like the story of the prodigal son in the Bible, right, where the son says to the father, old man, you are not dying fast enough for me. Give me my inheritance now. And then the son runs away, wastes all of the money, ends up starving, and decides to go back and ask his father if he can be a hired hand. Maybe that way he could earn some of his father's love back. But the story says that while the son was still at a distance, his father saw him and ran to him. And what you need to know is in that that culture, men never run. I am an English major. Men never ran, ran. Because in order to do so, they had to hike up their robes, which would have exposed their undergarments, and it would have been considered undignified. So men never ran. So here's his father running to his son, his son, who the villagers would have been ready to shame with their stares and their comments and their glances. Except for now, this running father is getting all the attention so that their shaming eyes fall on the father instead of on the son. You see, the father takes on the son's shame so the son doesn't have to. Does that sound familiar? And then the father says the same thing to the younger son that he says later to the older son, my precious son, welcome home. And then he gives the son his signet ring, which would have allowed that younger son to make contracts, seal documents, all in the family's name, showing that that father still respected that son enough to allow him to be part of the family business. And then in the original language, it says the father kissed him and kissed him and could not stop kissing him. All of that before the son could get out his little speech asking to be a hired hand. Before the son does anything to earn the father's love back, he already has it because he never lost it. And all the son had to do was turn around and receive his father's love. That's God. In Jesus, the Almighty God shamefully hikes up his majestic robe and runs to us, willing to be born in a barn and die in a garbage heap just to get to us. And at the cross, God takes on all our shame. In the words of the old hymn, it is nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. And all of that before we could do anything to earn it. Just like the father in the story, while we were still at a distance from him, when we were still thick in our sin, the God of the universe who did not have to, who could have chosen to do otherwise, and had he been any other God, would have. That God runs to you, and he runs to me, 
And he says, my best boy, my precious daughter, in whom I am well pleased. I love you. I respect you. Now be my business partner. Work side by side with me to redeem this world. You must be worth an awful lot for God to do all of that for you. So the question I want to leave you with is, how can you turn around this week through scripture, through prayer, through community, turn around and receive God's love and respect? So that the next time the devil comes at you that says, you've got to perform, you've got to achieve, or you won't be loved, you can say to him, I don't have to do that. I am a child of God, made in his image, redeemed in Jesus Christ. I am his unique, unrepeatable miracle, not because of anything I've done or achieved or performed, but because he has sought me, he has bought me with his blood, he saved me, through his power he raised me, and I have value because of him. I I am who he says I am. I can do what he says I can do. I can become who he says I can become, and I will be who he tells me to be. And I don't have to prove anything to anybody, and certainly not to you, devil. So go back to hell where you came from. I belong to Jesus. You see, it's a little bit like the MasterCard commercials. Fancy academic degrees and big houses to impress people. Hundreds of thousands of dollars. Tan leisure suit to get a girl. Hundred bucks at best. Your value to God? Priceless. There are some things that money can't buy, like love and respect. For those things, there's Jesus. Lord, help us to believe it, help us to receive it, and help us to live in light of it. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.